The Korean War is nearly absent from America's collective memory. Its place between World War II and Vietnam, the two most culturally impactful wars of the 20th century, coupled with its relatively short length of three years and one month, has ensured that it would be relegated to a footnote in popular American history. I'm here to tell you that you should know about the Korean War. Not only because it's the first major conflict of the Cold War, but because the atrocious and brutal nature of the Korean War would foreshadow half a century of American foreign policy, creating a pattern of war crimes and atrocities that would later be replicated everywhere from Vietnam to Iraq. Today, I want to talk about the broader history of the Korean War and the American atrocities within it as well as what the Korean conflict meant for American policy and how it impacted the evolution of the Cold War. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. My name is Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 104, No Gun Re. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. Special thanks in this episode goes out to Sochil Pereira, the show's newest supporter on Patreon. If you enjoy this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. As always, my sources can be found in the description. And with that, let's get started. To fully understand the Korean War, we need to first know a little bit about the background of Korea. The Korean Peninsula has long been a target of imperial aspirations. For hundreds of years, it was a Chinese tributary state, with the Qing dynasty deciding all of Korea's outward-facing policy. This relationship ended in 1895, with China's defeat in the First Sino-Japanese War, as Japan stepped into the role that China had just lost. From 1904 to 1905, Japan fought and successfully defeated Imperial Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, which ultimately resulted in the signing of the Unwilling Treaty of 1905, where the Japanese military occupied the Korean Peninsula and forced the government to declare itself an imperial protectorate. The Korean government, of course, protested the treaty signing, calling it illegal and requesting help from the great powers of Europe, all of whom ignored the plea. The Japanese officially annexed the peninsula in 1910, and for the next 35 years, the Korean people would bear the brunt of some of the Japanese empire's most brutal and sadistic behavior, much of which the Japanese government still refuses to acknowledge. In the middle of World War II, as the Allies became increasingly confident in the eventuality of their victory, Allied leaders began to envision the organization of the post-war world. In November 1943, Roosevelt and Churchill met with Chiang Kai-shek to solidify a plan for post-war Asia. This meeting, known as the Cairo Conference, resulted in the issuance of the Cairo Declaration, which recommitted the Allies to pursuing unconditional surrender with Japan, and declared that the Japanese Empire would lose every overseas holding that they had acquired since 1914, had taken from China, or had otherwise gained through aggression. This meant that Korea would soon finally gain its independence. Two days after the Cairo Conference, Roosevelt and Churchill met with Joseph Stalin in Tehran. A soon-to-expire neutrality treaty with Japan had prevented the Soviet Union from attending the meeting in Cairo. The Tehran Conference produced a number of significant results that shaped the rest of the war, but for this episode, the most relevant is that the Soviet Union agreed to enter into the Pacific War two to three months after victory in the European theater. On May 8, 1945, the Allies achieved victory in Europe, 
And so three months later, on August 8th, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan, two days after the United States dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Similar to the fate of post-war Germany, Korea, which for centuries had existed as a unified political entity, was to be split in two. The peninsula was to be put into a joint trusteeship by the United States and USSR, and reunited as a single nation after the expiration of a five-year term. The problem was, the Korean people, particularly in the South, didn't very much like that idea, and responded to it with massive strikes and protests. The war was over and they were supposed to be independent there and then, not in five years. Protests were exacerbated by the fact that the American military governor of South Korea, Lieutenant General John Hodge, retained a large number of colonial officials and Japanese collaborators in their official government positions, particularly within the National Police Force. In response to significant unrest, the U.S. military government banned strikes and cracked down on civilians with increasing levels of violence, culminating in the ban of left-wing opposition parties and the declaration of martial law. As Cold War tensions began to ratchet up, polarization between North and South began to grow. Records show that the Soviet Union had no plan to keep the peninsula separate. Yet even while participating in good faith in reunification negotiations, the United States increasingly refused to cooperate. As a result of that refusal, the dissolution of the trusteeship came to a halt. The United States used that lack of progress as an excuse to have the United Nations determine the outcome of what was called the Korea Question, and it was sure that the UN would rule in its favor. The Soviet Union, as well as a large number of South Korean politicians, protested and boycotted the decision, correctly assuming that the United States was using it to force control over the entire peninsula. As a result, the United Nations continued with the election, but only in the South, choosing an anti-communist hardliner living as an exile in America named Syngman Rhee. The establishment of separate elections in the South was widely unpopular with Koreans, who saw it as a step towards the permanent division of the country. Despite being incredibly unpopular, in 1948 Syngman Rhee miraculously won 92.7% of the popular vote. In August of that year, Rhee declared martial law and proceeded to oversee the systematic massacre of any South Korean suspected of left-leaning or communist sympathies, with an estimated death toll of over 100,000 civilians. Included in this campaign of brutal slaughter was the government response to the Jeju Uprising, a revolt on the southern island of Jeju spurred by the massacre of peaceful protesters by the police. The government responds, witnessed, documented, and approved by the United States, was the organized killing of over 14,000 civilians, ultimately 10% of the island's population. Syngman Rhee continued his campaign of ruthless slaughter as South Koreans continued to rebel against his government. Meanwhile, in response to the elections in the South, the Soviets oversaw their own in the North, forming the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, with Kim Il-sung as its first prime minister. The stage was set, each nation a proxy of Cold War powers, and each believing that it had the right to the whole peninsula. Political maneuverings began immediately. Syngman Rhee was not only incredibly unpopular, but Kim Il-sung also believed that he had been significantly weakened by constant rebellion, meaning that not only would an invasion be easy, but it would also be welcomed by the South Korean people. 
Eventually, in 1950, North Korea received the assurances of both the Soviet Union and China that they would support an invasion of the South. In a final overture of peace, Kim Il-sung proposed a Korea-wide election and sent diplomats to Seoul in order to negotiate a peaceful reunification. It's likely that the North Korean government knew the strategy would fail, as Ri refused to see the diplomats at all. Though the South did not know it yet, the path to war had been set. On June 25, 1950, the invasion began. The South Korean military was under-equipped and unprepared, allowing North Korean forces to advance quickly, resulting in their capture of Seoul two days later. Now, even though by modern war standards the Korean War is rather short, it's still three years long, and given that I try to clock these episodes in at around 15 minutes, that definitely presents a problem for me. So forgive me as I present a somewhat condensed timeline of events. In response to the invasion, the United States is caught off guard and only decides to commit ground troops after intercepting a Soviet cable affirming that the Russians refused to fight Americans in open combat. Communist troops continue their advance and on September 12, 1950, reach their farthest point, trapping South Korean and UN forces in the southeast corner of the peninsula. Three days later, American forces conduct an extremely risky amphibious landing behind enemy lines at Incheon, cutting off North Korean troops and retaking Seoul on September 25th. In October 1950, UN forces, made up almost entirely of Americans, push into North Korea and approach the Chinese border on the Yalu River, and are immediately repelled by thousands of Chinese soldiers sent to aid the North Koreans. In January 1951, communist forces recapture Seoul, only to lose it again two months later. At this point, the front line solidifies around the 38th parallel, and there are no more massive territorial gains on either side until the end of the war. Seoul had been captured and lost four times, and practically every city on the peninsula had been reduced to rubble. Peace negotiations began in July 1951, but the fighting continued until July 1953, when the Chinese and North Korean governments signed an armistice agreement with the UN command. Syngman Rhee refused to sign the document, verbally admitting his acceptance of it, but adamant for the rest of his life that South Korea should have united the entire peninsula by force. Rhee remained the president of South Korea until 1960, when he was evacuated to Hawaii by the CIA in the face of increasing protests. He left behind a tradition of authoritarianism that would dominate South Korean politics until 1988. Kim Il-sung would rule over North Korean politics first as premier, then as president until his death, whereafter he was succeeded by his son, Kim Jong-il. So that's a very broad chronology of the Korean War. What I'd like to do now is talk a little bit about the brutality of the Korean War, and how that gave form to future incarnations of Cold War policy. The Korean War may have been short, yes, but over the course of those three years it caused about three million civilian deaths, 10% of the entire population. On a per capita deaths basis, the Korean War is comparable with World War II. The majority of this death toll fell on the north, as not only did it have a higher population, but it was the target of a massive, indiscriminate bombing campaign, including the use of napalm. 
American air supremacy was uncontested, and by the war's end, U.S. forces had dropped more bombs on Korea than had been used in the entire Pacific theater of World War II, including the atomic bombs. On a related note, the Truman administration made it clear from the beginning that it was strongly considering escalating the Korean War to the atomic level. There have been consistent allegations, supported by a number of historians, that the United States used biological warfare during the Korean conflict, a claim that is somewhat substantiated by the fact that the United States government collaborated with Japanese war criminals from Unit 731 in order to access their research on bioweapons. According to decorated American General Curtis LeMay, quote, We burned down just about every city in North Korea and South Korea both. We killed off over a million Korean civilians and drove several million more from their homes, with the inevitable additional tragedies bound to ensue. Four-star General Emmett O'Donnell Jr. said, I would say that the entire, almost the entire Korean peninsula is a terrible mess. Everything is destroyed. There is nothing left standing worthy of a name. And he was right. The destruction of North Korea was so complete that by the end of the war, every single significant building in the country had been destroyed. Bombers were reduced to destroying footpaths or dropping their bombs in the ocean. North Koreans were forced to move their hospitals, schools, factories, and living quarters into underground tunnels. There are innumerable cases of American soldiers massacring North Korean refugees and civilians. As a matter of fact, the South Korean Truth and Reconciliation Commission concluded in 2010 that the South Korean army and its allies committed 82% of the atrocities in the Korean War. In 2006, historians discovered a letter from American ambassador to South Korea, John Muccio, openly stating that it would now be U.S. policy to shoot all approaching refugees for fear that one of them might be a North Korean soldier. In practice, this policy led to things like the massacre of civilians by the USS de Haven, which knowingly bombarded a group of refugees on a beach near Pohang, leaving 200 dead. Arguably the most infamous example of this was the massacre at No Gun Ri. On July 25, 1950, a group of 600 refugees began to flee the encroaching North Korean army, escorted by American soldiers. During the night, American troops murdered seven refugees and abandoned the group, and the next morning they continued on without escort. Five miles down the road, they were stopped by an American checkpoint outside the village of No Gun Ri. The refugees were ordered to assemble on the nearby railroad tracks while the soldiers searched their bags. The search proceeded as normal, until American planes descended upon them, strafing with machine guns and dropping bombs. Knowing very well that they were refugees, the American government had ordered them to be killed. The soldiers who had previously been searching through bags and confiscating pocket knives now turned and fired wildly into the crowd. Now more troops flanked the refugees and began executing the wounded on the tracks, while those still alive attempted to find shelter in a small culvert before being driven out. 
the crowd consisting almost entirely of the elderly, women, and children, then attempted to seek refuge underneath a small railroad bridge, where they were torn apart by heavy machine gun fire. As the sun set, American forces erected spotlights and continued to take shots at random corpses or anything showing signs of movement. The next day, planes returned to rain the killing field with rocket fire. For decades, the United States refused to acknowledge the massacre at Nogunri, and has to date never apologized. The army has maintained that it is not at fault, and that they were responding to gunfire from within the refugee group, a perpetuation of the myth that North Korean soldiers infiltrated war refugees, a phenomenon with zero documented cases throughout the entire war. In 2001, President Bill Clinton said, I deeply regret that Korean civilians lost their lives at Nogunri in late July 1950. I deeply regret. The brutality and wanton slaughter of the Korean War laid the foundation for further American violence around the globe. The Korean War policy of classifying any structure that could fit an enemy soldier as a valid target saw further use and expansion in Vietnam, and is echoed in modern drone policy classifying any male aged 16 to 55 as an enemy combatant. After Korea, the massacre of refugees became a horrific trend in American foreign policy, seen in both the aimless killings of Vietnam and the intentional targeting of civilians in the Gulf War's highway of death. Truman's classification of the war as police action that didn't require approval from Congress effectively bestowed the president with the unilateral power to conduct war, something that's brought the American empire to Yemen, Syria, Libya, and Somalia. The Korean War was the blueprint. It was the proving ground for over half a century of American policy. By testing the waters and successfully getting away with a horrifying illegal war, the American government was emboldened and set off to execute a series of wars and coups across the globe that would bring the world into line with the American vision of the future. The Korean War created our modern world. Hey, thanks for listening this week. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. I hope to see you next week, and this is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.